Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped to their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, he, what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. So, uh, Lori and I, on our 25th wedding anniversary, several years ago, had the pleasure of traveling to Italy to celebrate that. And um, when we got there, uh, we landed in Milan and we went, we were looking forward to it, of course, the food, and we went to the first restaurant where we got a chance to sit down, legitimately sit down to order. And something happened that has turned into an ongoing joke uh, within our marriage. And so we go in there and they bring us, uh, the waiter brings us the menus and we see the same waiter take orders from other people in the same way that you would see a waiter take an order from anyone and ask them what it is that they want. And they came to our table and they turn, he, he turned to Lori and he's like, ma'am, you know, what would you like? And he takes it down and then he turns to me and he tells me what it is that I'm going to get for my meal which, if you know me at all, I am highly suspicious immediately. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, this is our special. You are going to love it. This is what you're going to have. And then he would say, if you believe me. And, um, and so I sat there, and I, my red flags immediately went up. I thought, this guy's trying to get one over on me. There, and, of course, he doesn't say a price. And I, I'm thinking, we're going to, I'm not doing this. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. He goes, no, no, no. This is what you will get. If you believe me, this is what you will get. And I'm like, no. And he says, yes. And I, it got to the point where other people in the restaurant were even turning and looking. It was, it was that awkward. And finally, I just gave in. I said, okay. And he says, yes. And he, he leaves. And uh, so we look at each other and we're like, what is happening? You know, uh, he brings the meal. It is spectacular. And, uh, I'm not much of a dessert guy, but afterwards he comes and uh, he says, you will be having dessert. Uh, it is wonderful and this is what you will be having if you believe me. And uh, I thought, this is crazy. And he asked her what she wants 
and tells me what I'm going to have, if you believe me. And um, at this point, of course, I've already decided to give in, and um, so I'm like, okay. And uh, I'm, of course, even though I'm enjoying the meal immensely, I'm, of course, thinking, are we blowing our entire, you know, half our budget on one meal, um, our very first meal? And um, we have it. It is one of the best meals I've ever had. And when the bill finally came, it was absolutely reasonable. It wasn't bad at all. And I have no idea, we, to this day, we have no idea why me in particular, that's how he saw it. But we continue in different circumstances. We'll say to each other, if you believe me, you know, let's do this, if you believe me. Because he, he would just, that was his uh, method of, of persuading, was just to say, if you believe me. So all of that to say that for our, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, but I want to provide a little bit of extra background. So I want to give you, I, I want to go somewhere else for just a little bit, and then we're going to return back to Acts and verses 1 through 8, because I believe that this background is really going to help shed light on this passage that you would otherwise maybe not see at all, if you believe me. So, you know, we, uh, and part of this, doing this, we're going to go all the way back uh, in particular to Genesis here in a second. You know, and we do this with our families, right? Like, we teach our children about their roots. We say, hey, this is what you need to know about where we came from. This is where we used to live, even though you weren't born there. This is where you, you, your family came from. And we do these things to explain the roots because what we don't want to do is raise children who only think about, I started at you know, this particular time in this location, and this is where I live now, and that's all you think about, and that's all that matters. That's basically the description of a, of a selfish child. That all they're thinking about is how they fit. And so anyone that subtracts out their history is really, uh, or, or does not teach their own children some form of their own personal history, um, is kind of robbing their children of a fuller sense of who it is that they've become because that, those things contribute to it, that we teach children their roots. And in fact, just as a kind of a, a passing comment, and yes, you could even call it me taking a shot, but anybody individually in any church that disregards the Old Testament is doing so much damage to their own personal walk and to what the Bible is communicating in the, Old, in the New Testament itself by subtracting out the Old Testament. You are shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> you are subtracting out the very, you're, you're, you're wanting to focus on the tree that you see after you've cut off the roots. And those roots provide an incredible amount of background that helps us interpret what it is that we see in the New Testament. Instead of just going straight to a parable and saying, okay, what does the parable mean? We want to look at its context to include its Old, Test its Old Testament context. And the context of our passage today, of those first eight verses of the uh, of Acts chapter 8 is it's all taking place in a kingdom context, in a kingdom context. In fact, the word kingdom is used about 150 times in Hebrew in the original language that the Old Testament's written in, but just the word kingdom. And then in the New Testament, obviously a much shorter 
test of the two testaments. It's actually that, that word in the Greek, in the original Greek, is used 160-ish, maybe just over times in the New Testament. The word kingdom is all through the Bible, and that's just the word itself. More important than the actual word is the fact that the concept relating to kingdom is throughout the Bible. From Genesis 1 all the way through to the very last chapter in Revelation 22. In fact, I just said something about parables and um, you know, when Jesus is giving the parables, how frequently in the parables does he not say, the kingdom of God is like, and then he continues on into the parable. This kingdom perspective is just pervasive throughout all of scripture. In fact, um, you know, I finished some time ago preaching through the book of Mark, and one of the recurring things that Jesus would say is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. He would say it again, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. So this whole idea of this kingdom, the kingdom of God, as he spoke about in the parables, was coming to light, was taking place. There's something shifting in the kingdom and in, with this kingdom concept in the life of Jesus and, of course, in what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So what we want to do is turn briefly to Genesis chapter 1, where we see this whole idea of the kingdom thing come into play in the very first chapter. So chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, you see this idea of authority. Now the word kingdom is not used, but it's very clear that that's what's going on. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then look at the very next sentence, and let them have dominion. Dominion is an authority. It's a kingship in a sense. Um, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this dominion is being established over all of the animals, the, the fish, the birds, the earth, the livestock, and then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this predates the fall. We haven't even got to the fall. Right from the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, from the outset, there was what is referred to in uh, you know, theological circles, the phrase we use is a creation mandate. There is a purpose that is given. So if we're kind of looking and going, okay, what was God's original plan? So at this point, this is the nice thing about going all the way back to Genesis 1, is we can know or have some sense of what God's plan was before sin even enters the picture. And we go, well, okay, well, he created male and female, and he gave them a purpose. Their purpose was to have a dominion, and their purpose was to be fruitful. Their purpose was to multiply, to subdue, and to cultivate. In other words, he placed them in a garden 
So if he's in the garden and he is to be given dominion over the earth and all of the animals, that is to say that that garden is his kingdom, the man's, Adam's kingdom. And he's saying, okay, Adam, I'm creating you, I'm placing you in this garden, and I am giving you authority over it. And by the way, you have a job to do. I'm giving you a purpose. And your purpose is to multiply, to be fruitful, to subdue, to cultivate. In other words, you are given the purpose of expanding the garden. Go be a gardener and expand this garden. And by doing that and giving him that task of expanding the garden, he was telling him to expand this kingdom over which he was given dominion. Now, of course, that came with conditions. If you fail with the condition that I gave, which is don't eat of the knowledge of, or I'm sorry, yeah, knowledge of good and evil, then there will be life. So at the end of doing what God told him to do, so this is the original plan, pre-sin, do this thing, have dominion, expand the kingdom that I am giving to you, and then at the end of that, there will be life. But if there is disobedience, there will be death. Now, you enter in, in Genesis 3, the serpent, and what is the serpent's tactic, it is not to go head on with God, it is to intervene with Adam and Eve and to use essentially a kingdom disrupting tactic. He recognized God's kingdom design. He recognized that Adam had been given the opportunity to um, have dominion, Adam and Eve, a dominion over a kingdom, and that they have been given the task, the purpose of expanding that kingdom. And what does he do? He comes to them and says, you know, you could have a better kingdom. You could have, you could sit on a bigger throne. Remember what he actually said is, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And then he further lured them, lured Eve by saying, um, you, essentially that you can have a bigger and more glorious throne that will rule over a greater kingdom. So this is all kingdom focused, and he takes what God has already given to them in this kingdom um, perspective and said, yeah, but you could have a bigger and a better kingdom. You could be like God. And I don't know if this has ever actually occurred to you, this whole, all this kingdom type stuff and this kingdom philosophy or kingdom perspective, but even Satan was given, he was delegated authority. He too operated within a kingdom that God had placed him in. I mean, first of all, the very fact that he's a created being makes him a player inside of a kingdom, but he's not just a subject inside the kingdom. Even the evil one has some sort of uh, delegated authority in the kingdom. And where we see that explicitly, even though it's not the main point, but we see it played out, is in that temptation in the wilderness after Jesus goes into the wilderness and uh, Satan tempts him. Then in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, you'll notice, uh, I'll read to you anyway, what it is that happens. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I, so this is Satan speaking, 
to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will if then if you then will worship me it will all be yours so see even satan operates in this kingdom context and even he is saying I have authority, and he's even acknowledging that it's not inherent to him, that it has been delegated to him because he says, for, it, for uh, authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. In other words, I have authority over it. So I get the opportunity to give that to whomever I want. And of course, Jesus doesn't possibly fall that. So once again, just like in the garden... Satan entered the scene and makes contact with Eve where the serpent has this conversation to attempt to divide the kingdom. So here he does the same thing, at least in the wilderness with Jesus, where again he is trying to use this kingdom concept to say, look at the kingdom that I have given to me, and you know I have the authority to give this to you, Jesus. And all the time his goal is divide the kingdom, and in this sense, divide God from God. And of course, we know Jesus does not for a moment fall for that. Well, with those really big concepts at play that go from Genesis all the way into the life of Jesus, we know, though, that in between there was the Old Testament story then. So it's after uh, the fall has taken place, God starts from scratch. Uh, In Genesis 6, everyone is wicked. Um, He restarts with Noah. Things don't work out so well with Noah. And then eventually he restarts with Abraham. He creates his very own people that he calls his own. And remember that God promises Abraham a land and a people, which essentially is a kingdom. Fast forward through time, Moses uh, through with Moses, there is a nation that's created. You keep moving forward, you get to Joshua, and now we get to the point that with Joshua, he's going to enter the land, and all of these battles are going to take place. And why are the battles taking place? Because he is actually conquering land that has been promised because there is a kingdom, and Joshua is doing what he's supposed to do, which is to expand the kingdom that God is giving to him. Joshua is being faithful in doing that. And then ultimately, the whole entire Jewish history reaches its absolute pinnacle in King David. He is the top of the food chain as far as Jewish people are concerned. Why? Because he was king of the hill as far as the actual kingdom. Everything was at its best when David was in power. People were at peace. Um, There was great wealth to be enjoyed, and that spilled over into David's son, Solomon, and they enjoyed that. And that era of general peace and prosperity and having all of this land is known as the United Kingdom. But what does Satan do? He enters in sin. There's a division within the family. There's idol worship that takes place that ends up turning into generations of division and that splits the kingdom. Again, all of this kingdom stuff happens, and within this 
time of history after King David then, we have the division of the kingdom. The evil one appears to be successful. We have of the 12 tribes, 10 of them are in the north, two of them are in the south. There is a significant division and for and that all is recorded, you know, in first and second kings. And so for the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament, you have prophecies, you have narrative, you have poetry, and all of it's about the same thing. When is the kingdom going to be united again? When are we going to have our temple back? And then when we have our temple and that we're all back together again, and then there's a king that's back in power, and the kingdom is united once again, and the Jewish people, those, that chosen people, is unified and back in power. That is the entirety of the Old Testament, all the way up to the point where Jesus enters the picture. Okay, if you believe me. So, let's take that, all of that, into Acts chapter 8 and see what happens here. Let me reread now verses 1 through 4. And Saul approved of his execution. Of course, that's the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So it would seem that through Stephen, and I brought this point out last week, that God was building his church, that Stephen brought the gospel to bear, and we saw that it has these different responses when the gospel is brought uh, into the scene. But what did the evil one do? The evil one used his pawns. He used these men on the council, members of the Sanhedrin, to, in their anger, to not only persecute, but actually to kill Stephen. And in doing that, they actually found their leader in Saul. The devil found his leader of this rebellion in the man Saul, who not only approved of the execution, but he was so motivated by what he just witnessed, he thought, no, I'm moved to action. I don't just assent mentally with, yeah, I kind of agree with what's happening in front of me. He was so motivated by it, he says, no, I'm, yeah, I, I will take up the cause. And then he goes on to ravage the church. In fact, where it says ravage the church, or at least where the ESV has translated the word uh, in verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, it can also be translated, he is trying to destroy the church. There is a dedicated effort led by one man in this particular case, Saul, to go in and systematically, house by house, regardless of who they are, men or women, he is going to drag them by their collar out of their houses for believing in the gospel and hauling them off and committing them to prison. So what he's doing in trying to destroy the church seems to be the exact opposite of what the church was enjoying just chapters before this. When we began Acts and Jesus had ascended and, you know, the apostles were left to figure out, okay, what is it we're going to do? And then we get to Pentecost and 
the reception of the Holy Spirit, and all of these things are happening, a couple of places it mentions, uh, first of all, in Acts chapter 2, it says that um, it says they were having favor with all the people. And then in Acts chapter 5, it also said the people held them in high esteem. So what happened? What, what is going on that if they were being held in high esteem and everybody held them in, uh, in, had in favor of them, what was taking place? It looks as if Satan is actually winning, that his tactics are winning. In fact, historically, throughout Scripture, anywhere you see that someone is being scattered, it is a bad thing. Bad things are happening. So for sure we know that Satan, that the adversary, wants to scatter God's people, and we see that historically. But not only that, God himself, when he is judging people, when judging even his own people for their sin, he scatters them. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 and 65, this is how it reads, and Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. He's like, fine, go, which neither you nor your fathers have known, and among these nations you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but Yahweh will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. This is all judgment that God is giving, and it's attached to the verb scattering. In Ezekiel 36, verse 19, it reads, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries, in accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. That's God. So, as a general rule in the Bible, when you see scattered, it is bad. Whether it is the evil one that is trying to scatter God's people, or it is God himself that is judging people to scatter them. So, if we know that at one point they were enjoying favor with all the people and that the people held them in high esteem... And then it gets to the point where Stephen is proclaiming the gospel, and then the evil one responds by taking these men of his, these children of the devil, to kill one of their representatives in Stephen, and that it then clearly results in all of these believers being scattered, it would seem if you stopped right there, like everything is going very, very poorly. This is not at all like somehow the evil one has the upper hand. But actually, what we see here, and this is all communicated in this way, it's why I labored the point with all the kingdom stuff, is because I'm hoping that you too will see this for yourself in the text that actually what we see is that God is executing a great reversal. You know, when Pastor Nick has made his way through Exodus, you know, he showed, well, first what started in Genesis and then eventually in Exodus, you know, God is not only the creator, that when he sees fit and there's judgment to be had, he is the de-creator. 
You know, God takes these things. We also saw that in, earlier in Acts with Pentecost, there is this great reversal of the Tower of Babel where there was a division, a scattering that took place because of God's judgment. He scattered, he divided the people and gave them different languages. But in Pentecost, he united the languages. He basically, there was an undoing, there was a reversal as he's creating the church. And now, you, knowing what you know, can see as well that God is doing that here also. Because here is another historical fact. When that division of the kingdom took place, so you have King David that is, the, as far as the, the Jews were concerned, is um, the prototype. He is the dude. He is the man. We want the, the, the next Messiah is going to be some version some 2.0 of King David, and he's going to bring us all back together, and we're going to have the sword, and, and, and we're going to be in power again. And what happened, though, after that division of the kingdoms is that there was Jerusalem, the capital city of the two southern tribes, and then there was Samaria, the city of Samaria that became the capital of the northern tribe. And over time, there was great hatred, great division between the two. And so what does the devil do here? He uses Saul to ravage the church, to try his best to destroy the church. And in destroying them, he does the very thing that he wants to do with evil intent. He causes them to be scattered. But yet, what the evil one, what the adversary wanted to do from an evil heart actually works to God's glory because what happens is the very same saints that are worshiping in Jerusalem are now scattered to and driven to the city of Samaria. I'm hoping you're following me here. What is happening here is the division that took place over generations and that seems to have been, they were intractable, they were impossibly separated. There was ethnic hatred all of the sudden there is a unity. By the scattering, we have specifically that these believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Those are the two separate kingdoms. And in fact, not only are they um, in those regions, we see that they end up going to and spreading the gospel in the city of Samaria. There is a symbolism, there is a, a kind of typology that is taking place where it is showing us that actually the two geographical kingdoms that were divided are now being reunited. Now, not reunited so that there can be King David 2.0. It's to show the Jewish reader that knows that history that I just explained to you and go, oh my goodness, they were scattered, but they were scattered to the capital city that represents the other people, and there the gospel was being preached. And, so that you don't think that I'm completely making this up myself, it was predicted by Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, in some of the final words that he has, so this is just prior to Jesus ascending. In Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6, it says, and when they had come together, so these are the apostles, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, we've got this perspective. They're thinking, all right, 
Jesus is actually alive after all, and they're still, they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, so they're still of this King David 2.0 mindset. Are we, is it happening? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, that's the more important thing. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, the end goal in what Jesus is talking about there is that they're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But yet he goes out of his way. He doesn't just say, you're going to be my disciples and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. He goes out of his way to say all of Jerusalem and Samaria, wink, wink, know what I mean, know what I mean, kind of a thing. And then he goes on to say, and to the ends of the earth. He is tipping his hand that there is going to be a unification, a reunification, that there is going to be a reunion, a reconciliation of all people together, that this divided kingdom is not going to take place. And of course, we know that kingdom is going to look different, and yet at the same time, he is still hinting, he is still showing them that this is going to take place. Well, in addition to this great reversal, we see this continuing to play out then in verses 4 through 8 and what it is that uh, Philip does in Samaria. And as far as it tying to other portions of Scripture, I, I want to point out to you a famous exchange that Jesus had in Matthew 12 and in uh, the other Gospels as well where you remember when Jesus was casting out demons and the religious leaders were very jealous of what he was doing and all the attention that he was getting. And so what did the religious leaders accuse Jesus of doing? They said, well, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, by the power of the devil himself, you are casting out demons. And to which Jesus replied, a house divided against itself cannot stand. See, see, hopefully you're picking up on some of this language, this whole scatter, divide, judgment. And so they're saying, they're making this accusation, and it's Jesus that says, well, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he follows up with, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. And I submit to you that Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his descent, in his resurrection, in his ascension and being seated, his session is being seated at the right hand of God, he did that very thing. He bound the strong man at that point. And now what is able to take place is a plundering of the strong man's house. And with that in mind, follow with me verses 4 through 8 in Acts 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. There's our capital city of that other tribe, of that other kingdom, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord 
paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And here's the plundering that we're witnessing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So when Jesus, when the church, even in its beginning stages, the evil one goes right back to the same tactic he's always used, the same tactic he used with Adam and Eve, and that he tried to do with Jesus, of this dominion, I can give dominion, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a split in the kingdom. He does the exact same thing after killing Stephen. He then sends Saul out to ravage, to attempt to dis, uh, destroy the church, which actually results in scattering the Christians, which you, he would think, which you would think, the normal Jewish reader would think is exactly what is not supposed to happen or that would happen uh, in support of the evil one, but instead it's that very thing that ends up causing this unity, this reunification, and actually results in the plundering of the, uh, of the strong man's house. Now, it's symbolic of the church, and we know that because if you're not familiar, the Samaritans themselves are a hot mess, okay? The Samaritans, after that split, and they had established the capital city of Samaria, they began to intermarry. That's what the Assyrians uh, did. They brought in other um, idol-worshiping cultures, and they did this on purpose. They brought them into uh, to intermingle and to, in, and to mix with the Jews of the Northern Kingdom, and of course they ended up intermarrying with them. Then um, down the road they end up, uh, those that uh, continue to believe in God end up saying, well, only the first five books, the Pentateuch, is what we believe in. Then they built their own temple, separate from the temple that was in Jerusalem. Then that very temple that, they, that the Samaritans built actually gets converted into a temple dedicated to Zeus. I mean, these people just go from bad to worse as far as the Samaritans. And, and that is what's contributing to this hatred of those that are from Jerusalem and that are of pure Jewish ethnic ethnicity that look at the Samaritans and go, what are you kidding? You people are the epitome. You are textbook compromisers in every conceivable way. You're a compromiser physically in your marriages. You're a compromiser theologically with uh, the Hebrew canon. You are compromisers when it comes to the temple. You actually flipped it into a temple that is built for Zeus. And it's because of that that you see these different accounts between the Jews and the Samaritans that take place. But it's also then a picture of when Jesus, or when the church rather, is scattered and begins to proclaim in Samaria. And we see that that same gospel is not withheld from those people but it's actually given to them and that they hear it and that they paid attention to what was being said and that they heard him and saw the signs that he did and what ends up happening is that there was much joy in that city. You know, even Jesus recognized that the Samaritans were an issue. Um, after he had healed the 10 lepers, remember he healed 10 and only one came back? The one that came back was a Samaritan. And he made the comment, well, where's everybody else? Nobody else comes back except for this foreigner. 
He actually refers to the Samaritan as a foreigner. So he recognizes that there's a division as well. And yet, in this great reversal, now that Jesus has completed this atoning work and the church is being scattered, the very scattering of the church is doing the work of the Lord to actually reunite them and to bring that same glorious gospel message even to the Samaritans. Their knowledge of the past actually informs the present. God was reversing the curse. He was reuniting his kingdom, and he was plundering the kingdom of the evil one. The last thing that I just kind of want to point to is, is one of the Psalms. Sometimes, you know, you read Psalms and, and different things. It's just, it's a different culture. And so maybe we have a hard time associating or, well, we all, none of us, I don't think, grasps the, the depth of what a lot of these Psalms are declaring. Um, but in Psalm 87, the first three verses, you know, here we have that God uses physical things. So he uses the physical city of Jerusalem. He uses the physical, the geographic area of the city of Samaria to represent things. And the fact that when he's reuniting these two, that the Christians in Jerusalem are being scattered to the city of Samaria, how these physical things and these uh, real locations actually symbolize theological and greater um, concepts. It helps us then to go into different areas of the Bible and to have a greater understanding. We're, we definitely benefit from this period of time, being on this side of everything and having God's word to be able to carry everything that I've just talked about back into uh, the Old Testament and into the Psalms. So Psalm 87 verses one through three says, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. So of course this is a reference to um, um, Jerusalem being on the, the mount, and it says, Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. It is not Jerusalem, the geographic, you know, go, go into Google Maps and hit Jerusalem and go, okay, apparently that's the spot that God really loves. This is all connected to, what's, what, to what we're reading in Acts chapter 8. That's just one part of where we see how all of this connects, that God just doesn't love the dirt that exists in the Middle East and that falls within the boundary of what we call Jerusalem, where the Holy Mount stands. He loves that place because that is where his people are. The city of God are God's family. So when we read Psalm 87 verses 1 through 3, and we know what we know today about the church and how everything got reversed and transformed so that the kingdom itself, that the city of God are his people, the people sitting in here that have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. You are in the city of God. And when Psalm 87 talks about loving the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, he's talking about him about Christ dwelling in you. He loves you more than any of those other people or any of those other things. You are in the kingdom. You are the building of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And God, the psalmist, is saying glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. 
That's your identity. You are in the city of God if you are his child. Now, that doesn't include absolutely everyone. You, if you want to be a citizen of God, if you want to be a subject of his kingdom, in fact, better than that, a child of the king, it requires repentance of sin and faith in the work of Jesus Christ. But brother and sister, we are not just subjects. Yes, we are also his children, but I want to also remind you where we, also, where we started, which is the mandate has never changed. The mandate has never changed. Your job is to cultivate, it's to subdue, is to have dominion. It is, to put it even more briefly, to expand the kingdom. You are to live your life as a subject of the king, and he has given you authority. Every one of you that are God's children, he has given you the opportunity to rule within the sphere that you have. Within your job, you have certain authority. Within your community, you have certain authority. Within your family, you have certain authority. And it is your job to cultivate, to subdue, and to expand the kingdom. This is why we, why we witness to our children, why we witness to our coworkers, why we witness to the clerk at Circle K, is because we are doing our job to fulfill that original mandate to expand the kingdom. Recently, our catechism question was, what does your kingdom come mean? And the first part of that answer was, your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. This is your job. This is your calling. This is your mandate, the same one that was given to Adam. And I'll just close by reading two verses out of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you believe me, let's pray. Lord, we do believe you. Uh, we are fascinating. We are consumed. We are overwhelmed by all that is happening. We, we, we look at your word and we see what you said. You told the apostles that this is exactly what was going to happen, that he was telling them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Samaria. And then when the evil one appears to have gained the upper hand by killing Stephen and by recruiting Saul and by scattering the saints, but instead we see that he did the work of reuniting the kingdom, of helping unbelievers, Samaritans even, Gentiles, to be reconciled to you. And Lord, thank you that we are among those that were divided that we were among those that were separated from you, and yet you saw fit to make us your children, that you have given us your, through the power and the work of your Son the opportunity to be reunited with you as well and to be in your kingdom, the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.